sometimes the things that make us mad are just minuscule in comparison to what's out there. Why do you sweat that so much? Don't let that stuff bog you down. What you bring to the table is extremely valuable. Don't let anyone else tell you that you can't because of whatever reason. Be yourself, as my third grader self told me. I just want to be me. Welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. In a world that tells women they're too much or too little, it's easy to feel boxed in. But we're here to change the narrative. Every woman harbors the spirit of flight. And on this show, we explore the magic that happens when a woman charts her own course and pursues her dreams. One story at a time. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. If you don't know the woman behind The Dragon Lady, let me be the first to introduce you to Meryl Tengestall. Meryl is the world's first and only Black woman to fly the Air Force's U-2 spy plane. Now, as retired U.S. Air Force colonel, she has an impressive resume, including a TV reality star, motivational speaker, personal fitness trainer, and now the author of Shatter the Sky, what going to the stratosphere taught me about self-worth, sacrifice, and discipline. Meryl grew up in New York City with her mom and a lot of Star Trek. Sci-fi, it turns out, has much to teach and inspire a precocious girl with dreams bigger than the box intended for her by society. There was no see-it-to-be-it example for Meryl, besides Captain Cook. She is a true trailblazer who shares her unique perspective with us in the spirit of serving and giving an example for anyone who is eager for permission to dream big and pursue that dream. You will find many surprises in this conversation. We talk about growing up in the Bronx, family life and turbulence, evolution of a dream, flying solo, gender bias, being a woman in a top secret military mission, landing with precision as a pilot and in life, race relations, family planning, naming, cats. There is a lot. So let's jump in. This is a brutally honest, fascinating, and fun conversation with Meryl Tengestall. Thank you, Meryl, for taking the time today for this conversation, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I'm excited. So can you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? My name is Meryl Tankestall. I'm a retired Air Force colonel. I had over 23 years of both Air Force and Navy flying aviation experience. And currently, I retired in 2017, and I am now a personal trainer and speaker and uh, recently published author. Awesome. Can we dig into your backstory? I'd love to talk about the context in which your story arises. So for me, I was uh, born and raised in the Bronx, New York. So go Yankees. I've just probably lost half the audience at that point. They're like, (laughs) Yankees. My mom raised me primarily. Uh, We were a single parent household from about the age of seven. And when I reached about seven or eight, that's when I decided that I wanted to be an astronaut. 
And the reason why is because I watched a, a lot of science fiction, in particular Star Trek. And I said to myself, hey, I really want to boldly go where no one has gone before. So I'm, I'm going to go uh, do that. I'm going to be an astronaut. And that's what I set my sights on. As I fast forward through life, I was interested in the sciences, uh, math and science in particular. And that led on for me, you know, graduating high school and going to college, pursuing a degree in electrical engineering. And once I was done with the degree, I got commissioned and I went to officer candidate school in the Navy back in 1994, got commissioned, had a pilot slot and went to pilot training in uh, 95. Got my wings in 96 and started flying helicopters. I was in the helicopter fleet for about four years. Then I became an instructor in the T-6 Texan II aircraft, which was a new aircraft bought by the Navy and the Air Force. And then from there, I switched over to the U-2 back in 2004 to fly the U-2 aircraft. I got picked up by the Air Force. And so that began my adventure. Um, I could go into it in more detail, but I mean... Yeah, I do want to talk about the U-2 and the flying but I want to just spend a bit more time on the context. Yes. And the backstory, mostly because I think there are a lot of layers there. And I think that there must have been influences that really helped either fuel your fire or sort of escort you in the direction that you were going. There must be a story behind there. No, I. You know, the story is really, I watched a lot of Star Trek. Yeah. I watched, you know, back in the 70s, early 60s, I think Star Trek, all the Trekkers and Trekkies are going to yell at me. I think it was in 1968, Star Trek was created by Gene Roddenberry. And it just fascinated me. It fascinated me that there was this captain that was in charge of a ship that was very diverse. And these people were exploring the unknown. As a young kid, really resonated with me. I like doing things that are new for the first time. I like looking at things that are considered the unknown. Mm -hmm. When I looked at that show, for me, it wasn't just this weird science fiction phenomena. It was actually, it helped me develop at that young age a blueprint for how I was going to go through life. I looked at the characters there and they all were graduates of Starfleet Academy. So I said to myself, at seven, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to go to college. It just made that connection. Most people, you had the science officer, everyone knew about stars. Okay, so that's, that falls into the sciences. All right, so I'll be good in math and science. If I wanted to be an astronaut, to fly the, sh the ship, because that's what I wanted to be, like Sulu or Chekhov, I guess I need to learn to fly, so I need to be a pilot. So these are just basic things that I knew were the basis to become this astronaut. And when you look at the show, you look at someone like Captain Kirk or, or Spock or McCoy, they would go onto these planets that were just totally unknown, but they would use the skill sets that they had developed through Starfield Academy in their life to face these challenges and other missions that they had done. And so for me, I looked at everything in life as this experience that's going to later translate into knowing something in the future. It's something that you would put in your tool belt because it's an experience. And what you've learned from that, you'll just build upon it. As a kid, that's how simple it seemed to me. And I said, okay, let's go. Let's do this. You mentioned in your memoir that settle down, quote unquote, was a frequent 
directive aimed? What was that all about? And how did that have a long lasting impact on you, good or bad? Yeah. So as I mean, as a kid, I was very inquisitive, but I was also very talkative and disruptive. And I was into everything. So, you know, a lot of people wanted me to chill out, relax, settle down. Hey, stop doing that. Stop touching that. Stop saying that. Stop talking to people. I would say even in high school, which I remember the most is that um, there's a point in the book where I joined a planetarium squad because that's how big my high school was. And so I remember when I was interviewing, they had this huge workbench of all these parts and pieces. And I was just like all over it trying to connect stuff. And they were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, this is just interesting. And I almost didn't get the job because I was just out of control. Luckily, you know, they hired me on. But it stems back from when I was a kid going to my grandmother's house. She would have all these old radios and stuff, and I would take them apart, and I would just see how they worked. If you understand it, you build upon it, and eventually that skill set will be useful down the line, especially if you're an astronaut exploring, right? Yeah. How could you go wrong? So I'm curious how that character trait bumped up against the regimented lifestyle of the military and even just flying, how controlling it is. So just getting that knowledge and not settling for something, oh, I think it it served me well. So when you're flying an aircraft, you will get your procedures and how you're supposed to do something. If you're flying in a pattern, you have to fly on a normal day, no wind day. You're going to fly at X speed, X power, X this and that. And you have that, those limitations. You're going to put the flaps down, but you're not going to do it, you know, above 120 knots because you're overspeed, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. But there are days when it's windy. There are days when there's thermals. There's days when there's turbulence. There's days when it's raining. And you have to be able to be flexible and not so rigid when you're flying an aircraft. You have to have what's called, you know, you have to be able to feel the aircraft. You have to, I don't want to say fly by the seat of your pants because that could get you in trouble in certain instances, especially in weather. But there's decisions you have to make based on your feel, based on the actual procedures in your surroundings. And you build upon that. I think that's what makes a good pilot from a great pilot, to be able to take everything that you've built upon and use that in that situation. No situation is the same in any given day. So you have to be ready for that. There could be a day that there's wind shear. You have to know what it looks like, feels like, and know how to handle that situation. The books will give you an idea and warnings, but it won't tell you how to fly that. Mm -hmm. To be flexible, to understand the rules, to get into the intricate breaking apart something and understanding the nuances helps you later on. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always been like that. Probably... In the military, that's why the maintenance side, you know, you have operations when you fly the aircraft and you have the maintenance aspect. That's why we work hand in hand. And that's why for me, even when I was flying helicopters, I was a detachment maintenance officer because I wanted to know more about how the aircraft worked. I wanted hands on. I wanted to turn wrenches with the guys. I wanted to do that, not only from a leadership aspect, but to learn the aircraft. Makes sense? Yeah, totally. I'm curious when you went through high school and college and Well, first of all, if people asked you what your dreams or goals were at that time, did you quote sci-fi at that point? It's funny, in my high school yearbook, there is a picture of me and an astronaut like 
the pitcher because I was one of the few people that were, were consistent since elementary school or junior high school of what I wanted to be. There had never been any waiver. Like there were, I had fallback plans if it didn't happen. Yeah. But no, I was pretty consistent. And dissenters and supporters, what did you say or what do you say? I'll say, put it in present tense, to people who have given you feedback directly or indirectly about your dreams or life choices. When I was growing up, my mom never really said anything negative or positive about it. She just let me be, which is probably a good thing. Parents take heed to that. And I had mentors. So, I mean, Growing up, I had people who would feed into that, whether it was um, I had one educator that would give me Star Trek books all the time and feed into the fascination with that, or another science teacher, would, which would try to answer all of my wacky questions about why does this work and, and that work. People giving me negative feedback like you can't do it. I think society back in the 70s and 80s kind of said women had a role. When I look back at, I'm going to make some noise for example, oh, hold on. I'll show you. So for example, so yeah, I'm holding up my school years. These are my report cards from kindergarten all the way up to high school. Wait, so in your hand, you have report cards from grade school? (laughs) From grade school. I have report cards. So when I wrote the book, it was definitely this search of who I was. So, you know, I had a ghostwriter and we did a lot of interviews and I pulled this out. And he was like, you got what? And I'm like, yeah, these are, these are my uh, report cards. And I started reading them. And the consistent theme was my behavior. I wouldn't shut up. But what's funny about it is that, for example, here, I don't know if you can see this or not. Sixth grade. Sixth grade. So it says, when I grow up, I want to be. And it has boys and girls. Can you see that? Oh, I do see that. Right? So you look at that, and this is back 70s and 80s. Wow. Look at the type of skill sets for boys. You okay, be so fi- this is what I see. I see. I see this form, and it says, when I grow up, I want to be, and under the girls column, there's mother, nurse, school teacher, oh, airline hostess, model, and secretary, period. Yeah. There is a blank other. Yes. Wow. And then for boys, it's like firefighter, policeman. Astronaut, soldier, basketball player. Yeah, okay. Right? So it's interesting because the roles back then, right? So this is, I mean, we're talking 40 years ago. But I picked most of the stuff on the boys' side. And I continued to pick that until third grade. So this is what I wrote. Oh, my gosh. That's classic. So in the blank... She checks and writes, myself. I want to be myself. Absolutely. Oh, wow, that's rich. This is third grade. So, I mean, you know, my son's in third grade now. He's nine years old. Even at this point, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut. I just wanted to be myself. I did not want to be a secretary. There's nothing wrong with being a secretary. Well, I became a mom eventually. <laughs> or any of those, those traditional things. But I, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to do stuff that pushed me to a limit. And I had, I had always been like that. So working outside that norm, that traditional norm, you would get ostracized by classmates or peers or even family members because you weren't doing what was expected. It's interesting that at 
third grade, so at you know, effectively age nine, ten, you were implored really to declare your individuality, really, because it, you know, you sort of it sounds like you sort of struggled with where to check the box. And then you were finally like, wait a minute, I'm gonna own this, right? I'm gonna make my own option here, which is that I want to be myself. And there was probably it was like a sense of agency doing that. Like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I just had that attitude. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Captain Kirk rubbed off on me because he was pretty cavalier. Like he was pretty like, damn, the rules are, you know, regulations. We're going to go do this. We're going to break the rules. We're going to do this because it makes sense. And because my skill set tells me that it makes sense. Thank you, Gene Roddenberry. Appreciate it. (laughs) So what was it like for you learning how to fly? It was clearly a stepping stone, but still learning how to fly is pretty neat. I mean, it was great. It was a very stressful experience because when you're in the Navy, my primary flight instructor was a very difficult, uh, we call him on wings. He was a difficult man to please. So he demanded perfection in that aircraft all the time. And I I can appreciate that because a bad day can mean life or death, right? So he was incredibly hard on me and he expected consistent perfection and he let me know in very colorful language when I was not pleasing him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my flight school experience up until my first solo was incredibly stressful. The first couple of months until were... Until you could uh, kick him out. <laughs> I mean, he would curse me out pretty bad. And the funny part is, I think one time I like, I contemplated like, I'm just going to open up this... In the T-34, the canopy, you can open up the canopy in flight and when you bail out, because you could bail out and the the parachute's attached to you. You could just like roll out of the aircraft and just go down. Like I remember one point I was like, I think the consequences of bailing out will be less compared to what I'm being told right now in this what aircraft. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, you know, having primary training that is so strict and really requires so much of you probably paid off. Because it sounds to me like flying the U-2, which I want you to tell us more about, is extremely difficult. It is. um, The U-2 is difficult and you have to be pretty much on your airspeed and altitude when you're flying that aircraft because you have to stall it at two feet. So you can't stall it at four feet because you might break things. The parameters are very tight. When you're flying up at altitude, the higher you go, you're on autopilot, but you have you have to be able to monitor and be able to fly the aircraft if something happens within that narrow margin. Being sloppy with your air work is, yeah, it's not an option in the in the U-2. So my on-wing, I mean, he was like that. I think he gave me special attention because I was one of his students, so I reflected upon him. But he was known in the community as a screamer. Unfortunately, I didn't know that at the time. You learned it. I, oh, yeah. Oh, that first flight. Yeah. I'd love to zoom out and for you to introduce the U-2. It's such an extraordinary aircraft and piloting it is extraordinary. So tell us what it is and, and what it was like to fly that high and in such a specialized aircraft. So the U-2 is an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance aircraft, so ISR platform. And the U-2 has no weapons on it. It's basically a microphone and a speaker. We're kind of like the angels in the sky. 
as we're flying, we take pictures. We take imagery in form of electrical, electric optical or infrared or Doppler. We absorb signals, and you can take that as far as you want to go. We take that information. We send it to a ground station where they process it, analyze it, and then they send it out near real time to the end user, whether that be someone on the ground taking fire or other agencies. And that's our primary purpose. We could do some communications relay. This aircraft has been around since 1955. It was developed by Kelly Johnson. It was designed really to fly over Russia at a high altitude to avoid a missile lock to do reconnaissance. And it would really make the Soviet Union pretty angry about it because they knew we were there and they kept saying it, but we kept denying it until in 1960 they shot down Gary Powers. I mean, that was a big deal. But this aircraft has been flying for over 65 years. And when you look at the frame, it looks maybe the same or similar to the original aircraft, the Alpha model. But I mean, internally, the, the systems, we do have an, elect, an EW system, electronic warfare system. It's pretty updated. The uniqueness about this aircraft is it's a single-seat aircraft, so it's only one pilot. Unless you're training, we have four two-seaters. The fact that we fly above 70,000 feet, can't tell you exact altitude because it's classified, typically will put us out of a lot of weapons ranges. And because we're flying at that high altitude, we wear a pressure suit, which is basically a, a NASA spacesuit, just modified a little bit to keep us alive. It does two things. The first that the suit does is provide 100% oxygen for you to breathe. The suit inflates in case of the cockpit depressurizing, and it'll keep your body at 35,000 feet. If you're above Armstrong's line, which is approximately 63,000 feet, depending on the day, there will not be enough pressure in the atmosphere to keep fluids in your body. So basically, if you're up there at above 63,000, you're going to die pretty quickly unless you have a suit that is able to sustain you. So the suit in itself, flying it is a challenge because of all the things that you lose, uh, the tactile, your senses get dulled a little bit. You can't hear as well. You're not smelling anything except 100% oxygen. Your tactile feel because you're, you're wearing gloves are little to none. The fact that you're single seat, um, a lot of people like crew concept, but you're by yourself. You're flying for long hours. So you're flying for over eight, eight plus hours in a mission. My longest mission has probably been about 10 and a half hours. There is no bathroom to go to. So number one in the suit is allowed. Number two is not. Those are a couple of things about this aircraft that are different. And the, the last thing is that flying this aircraft after X amount of hours up there, you actually have to land this aircraft by stalling it at two feet and landing in no drift, no crab. You're tired. You're coming back after a mission. And now you have to land this on a bicycle gear configuration as opposed to a tricycle landing gear configuration with someone in another car, which is another pilot, giving you out to calls and holding this aircraft off. Why you're in a suit, why you have restricted visibility. Wow. What's the view like? That's amazing. Wow, I wish I can, I was just, I'm going to share my screen with you so you can have an idea. I was just going to do a post. You can see that, correct? Yes, I can. It's amazing. This is what I got to see every day. So you start seeing the curvature of the earth. It's not flat. The sky gets darker. Above 60,000 feet, a lot of your weather phenomena is not there anymore. 
because it, you know, stays in our atmosphere. It's very quiet and serene. There's not a lot of wind up there unless it's an interesting day. It's beautiful. Yeah, pretty intense. So does that meet your dream of being an astronaut? Uh, no. The weightlessness part, all of that. Yeah, I just need a little bit more. You know, about seven years ago, I did a, a speech and someone asked me, so what are you going to do? You're not, you know, I wasn't going to be in NASA. When I left the Navy, I knew NASA was not going to, it was probably like a 10% chance I would make it to test pilot school because that's one of the, that's one avenue unless I went to get my PhD and that's why I was going to get out of the Navy. I said to them, and I was serious, I said, ah, I guess I got to make a billion dollars and just buy a ticket. And, and people laughed in the audience, but I looked because at that point I can already see what Elon Musk was doing and all these other, other things were happening. And I was like, yeah, this is quite feasible. In the next 10 years, we're going to, there's going to be um, commercialized travel outside of NASA. Like NASA is going to lose the reins in terms of space travel. It's going to become more commercialized. I kind of saw that writing on the wall early on before other people started. So, you know, we'll see. So you're waiting for the call? I'm waiting for the call. Awesome. Yeah, I got to make a lot more money, but I'm waiting for the call. But I'm working on making money too, so you know. Yeah, well, I mean, some people make the money and some people just get the call. Some people get the call, yeah. Wow, what a fascinating flying story. And I'm still trying to imagine what it must be like to fly solo at that altitude. It's a level of peace that I enjoy. I think a lot of people have realized, especially during COVID, they don't like being by themselves, but I love being by myself. It's okay. You're doing the mission. So the mission is front and center and you got to do that. And it's not very often as we're adults that we get to focus on one thing. Because when I'm down on ground in my zero knot chair, I'm thinking about, okay, I'm doing this podcast right now. I just had a client that I worked with um, I have a client at two o'clock that I have to do legs with. Okay, what we're going to do. Okay, I got to pick my kids up. I can't be late. Like I got all these things going. We're juggling all these balls. But when you're flying, you're focused on flying. And to me, that is a beautiful thing to be focused on one thing at a time when you have so many things going on. So what I loved about doing the mission in the U2 is that when I was there in theater, I was doing the mission. But as I'm transiting there and back after you do your administrative stuff, I get time to myself to think about me, reflect on my life, reflect on what I'm doing, reflect on other things. And that time was very, very important to me. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they should do more reflecting. And I think COVID has given people that opportunity, but I think some people have gone, don't like it. They don't like being by themselves. They don't like the loneliness, I guess. But my question is, why? You don't like being with yourself? Well, you don't like yourself? Can't entertain yourself? Maybe as an only child, you could give me a crayon and a cardboard box and I'll do, I'll be happy for the next week. I'll find a whole bunch of things to do. But my perspective is a little different. I just showed you the view of the earth from a farther distance. And to me, life is very small and Sometimes the things that make us mad are just minuscule in comparison to what's out there. Why do you sweat that so much? And I think once you peel that back about yourself, uh, you kind of just let it go. There's a lot of things I could be angry about, but as I, as I get older and I have seen this perspective for a long time, I just want to share it and 
say, don't let that stuff bog you down. What you bring to the table is extremely valuable. Don't let anyone else tell you that you can't because of whatever reason. Be yourself, as my third grader self told me. I just want to be me. Your third grade self, yeah. So you transitioned out of that role flying the U-2. I'm wondering what that decision-making process was like for you, and I believe it also aligned with starting a family. Yeah, the decision to have a family, I didn't really want to have any kids, and my husband wanted two kids. I think I tell the story, not to be a spoiler, but I, when I went on my first staff tour, my joint staff tour at NORAD Northcom, there was an opportunity, there, there was a window there to have a, have a kid and still do my work and, and do everything. And then my husband started getting cold feet. He's like, is it the right time? And I'm like, it'll never be the right time. You know, I'm 40 at the time. And as women, as we get older, above 35, 36, you're considered too old. So I'm super old. Yeah, I'm 40. Yep. Yeah, but guess what? I got pregnant like that. Like, because I'm in great shape. I'm running half marathons. I'm doing stuff. I'm working out. I'm on my staff tour, so, you know, I'm not flying, so I'm, I get more time in the gym. Yeah, got pregnant quick. And in 2012, you know, I had my, my son, my son Flynn. So mm-hmm. I still say that the timing's never going to be perfect. If you want to have kids, you know, and you're, you're financially stable and you're in this place and you're emotionally, mentally stable, yeah, that just go have it and, and go with it. Go with the flow. My son, like most women, get really excited. Oh, I'm pregnant and all that. And I'm just like, it's just a means to an end. Like, here's this little person invading my body. It's pretty annoying. There are days that I didn't feel that great. There's days, I think my second trimester, I ate a Big Mac and fries every day. It was absolutely disgusting. I will never eat a Big Mac again. But during that time, it was the best food on earth. So what was the biggest adaptation that you had to make in becoming a parent? I think wrapping my mind around it was that I, I could not be as selfish anymore. My needs were not going to be the priority anymore. So, you know, as an only child, especially where you could do anything you want and maybe I didn't get everything, but I got a lot of things that was going to become secondary. So I had to I was aware of that and I had to wrap my mind around it. Before, you know, I had Flynn. I'm a cat person. I like dogs too, but cats are just more independent and you can leave. And before I went on my staff tour, I had put down my cat that I had since I went to join the military. So she was like 16 years old. When I got to Colorado, I adopted two cats and uh, two boys. And they were such a pain. But, you know, I just had to, I was like, okay, maybe this is what a kid will be. <laughs> I don't know what made me think that. I was like, this is what it, I think a kid will be like a little bit. You know, at nighttime, these cats were running around, waking me up. You know, they were just doing a lot of things. And I was just hanging out with them. I'm like, okay, well, two cats, not bad. All right, let's throw a kid in the mix. <laughs> I got the tools from somewhere. You'll dig deep for those. It's really funny. All right, so you have two cats, you have a husband, and, and then you have a kid. Yeah. So are there any stereotypes or myths of parenting that you can debunk from your perspective? I try to keep my mouth quiet about parenting because there's some women who love, love, like, I love being a mom. I love, it makes me feel warm inside. Like, I got none of that. Like the whole, like, breastfeeding, I'm like, oh, okay, I'll try for three months. And I'm like, oh, okay, it was all right. I'll try a little longer. And then I was like, 11 months, I was like, Flynn, you're off. You're off this. Because he was exceeding 
I think I max pumped like 25 ounces a day and he was exceeding that. I was like, bro, you're, my son was, is a beast when it came to eating. So um, the breastfeeding part, as much as it's fun as a parent and you drop weight a lot faster, it wasn't a great experience. <laughs> and probably because in my staff tour, they didn't have any nursing places at NORAD Northcom. So I was pumping in the bathroom. I wasn't a big fan. I had some people that would give their offices up if they had the time. It was kind of a pain working and pumping and being in meetings. And that first year, it was a lot of juggling. As kids get older, they're really jerks. And as we were kids, we were were jerks. But it's not, I love them all the time, but there are days I just don't like them. Like, I'm like, where did you get this? Because I didn't make this part. And Sometimes I'll drop them off to school and they'll look sad and they'll be like, mommy, what's wrong? I said, because of this right here. And I'll put my hand around all of them. I'm like, you need to control whatever this is going on. Yeah. And tell us about your daughter. My daughter, she's adopted. So we adopted her this year. Uh, We fostered her. It was a foster to adopt program. When I didn't want to have kids, we had always talked about adopting. So once I retired, we were stationary. We were in a place to go through the foster to adopt process. And we did. I will say that process is like flying the U2. It's challenging. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not all roses. There's a lot of screaming, yelling, and tears, not by me, but by the foster kid at the time and with the social workers. And you have to be able to weather a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of uh, BS because the states impose so many rules and regulations and visits and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you throw another parent who's actually losing their child and in the process because their life is not together because whether they want to or they can't. So it's, it's stressful for everyone. But we went through it and it turned out well. She was our first foster and we got to adopt her. But she comes with a whole host of baggage, unfortunately. Uh, she was in the foster care system since three. She has a lot of survival traits that you can't go through life like that. So um, we have to work through it. Why did you bring in the uncertainty into your life? Because we wanted to give a child that was dealt a poor hand the opportunity to be the best version of themselves. My son is incredibly compassionate. He's smart. You got me and then my husband's a physicist. He's got five degrees. So my son is very smart and very insightful. And We knew he can handle that type of pressure. If he was another kid, we probably would not have done it. And he's a good big brother. Um, he's he acts like a big brother sometimes. He's manipulative sometimes, but he's a good example for her. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, we put him through it. We talked to him about it. He was as mature as can be as an as an eight year old about it. He was like, "Well, I'd rather have a brother than a sister." But he's like, oh, I'll love her too. And, you know, he was, we talked through that. That's why we did it. Yeah. So before we transition from kids, I want to ask you about Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N, because ironically, I have a son who has the same name, Flynn. And it's also spelled F-L-Y-N-N, which has a fly in it. Yeah. So it has fly in it, which is interesting. But I wanted you to just share with us the story behind your son's name. Yeah, Flynn. So 
my husband is half Irish, half Norwegian. And of course, I'm, I'm black. My family side's from the Caribbean and, and from St. Thomas, St. Croix, and my dad side's from Trinidad. So we wanted them to have a black name, a Norwegian name, which is Tengestal, last name, and an Irish name. And I actually picked his name, not because it had fly in it. I just thought it was a cool Irish name. It was either that or Tristan. And I thought Tristan was overused a little bit. We, Connor is always overused. Shannon, no. I think that's an Irish name as well. So we had a couple, but Flynn was like, I just liked it. I thought it was easy, one syllable. And it was easy to yell his name when I'm mad at him. So that's why we picked it. So I picked Flynn. His middle name is Obari. It's uh, Nigerian, stands for I think the translation is either strength or warrior. So it's, it's a strong name. So that's the black name. And then Tengestal is the Norwegian name. So he's, I always joke and say he's my little black Irish Viking. <laughs> but he is. I mean, he's, he's nine and he's already like up to my shoulder. Um, and that's without, he has, a, he has a frohawk, but he's always been big. He came out like at 22 inches. So he was, he was three feet at two. Almost a two footer to start with. Yeah. So he was three, he was three feet at, at two. So we have a couple of six footers and six one, six two in our family. He is definitely on track to be, that's the Viking side. Fun. Yeah. Watch him, right? That's, he's going to be something. Yeah. He's a beast. Yeah. So let's transition to talk a little bit more about your book. Came out just a few months ago, Shatter the Sky with a subline of what going to the stratosphere taught me about self-worth, sacrifice, and discipline. So what's in the name? Shatter the sky. Well, one, I'm a pilot, right? So we've done that. The term breaking glass ceilings, especially during the last, not the election before, was a big term used. We're going to shatter glass ceilings. Yeah. Like, personally, and there's no offense to anyone, I did not like that term at all. I thought it was setting the bar low. I thought a ceiling, just like in your house, is what, nine, 12 feet, six feet. Okay, so you shatter a ceiling. Okay, that's great. You're breaking the ceiling. All right, there's a lot of debris on the floor. Great. It was okay, but I thought it could be better. And I was actually talking to a friend, a good friend of mine about it, and we were coming up with some ideas for the book and Shatter the Sky came out. You know, we were kind of joking back and forth and she was like, your, your titles are lame, blah, blah, blah. And she said that like, I think a little sarcastically and I stopped and I thought about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Because people, like as I thought about, people say the sky's the limit. That's a saying, the sky's the limit. Well, it's not the limit. For me, it was never the limit. For me, it was, you know, the ceiling was definitely not the limit. You know, to me, it's about getting into space and exploring that unknown. So, you know, I've already shattered the glass ceiling. I'm using my fingers in quotes. Let's shatter, you know, shatter the sky is perfect. And that's how it came to be. It's easy for us to set very low bars and make it. I look at my, uh, my daughter and when she came to our household and I said this to her at one point, I said, like, she would do something very basic. And she would look at me for this, like, I'm looking for accolade, like I'm looking, and I, I look at her, I said, and this might sound mean, and I, I didn't say it in this way, but I, I was like, you're not going to get rewarded for doing the basic. This is what we expect of you. 
if you want to live in this house, you have to do the basics. That's make up your bed, clean your room, be accountable for a seven-year-old or six-year-old at the time. Anything above and beyond? Yes. The fact that it took you two hours to do homework or math problems that should have taken you two minutes, and when you got it done, I'm not going to give you a reward. I'm going to say, good job, next time, let's do it better. And I said, I'm going to expect more from you than anyone has ever expected from you. And are you ready for that? So I think as human beings, we like to set low bars for ourselves and feel great. Yeah, 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 I did that. And sometimes you want these little objectives to make it too. But that's great. Pat yourself on the back for a second and then keep going. So for her, she's always looking for that. So I think the ceiling, yeah, it's, it's a small milestone in, in the search of something bigger. So that's, that's how I look at that. And what was writing the book and putting it out into the world, sort of birthing this story to the world, what was that process like for you? Did it change you? To get the book out, at first, for a couple of years, people had asked me to do one, and I kind of blew it off. And it was only until Tough as Nails, that interview process started, when I was interviewing for the, the reality show Tough as Nails, I started thinking, okay, I, I need to start writing a book. Because when I looked at the show and how it resonated with me, I said, if I get my story out, and this is going to be shared with millions of people, I want people to hear the backstory. And I want people to know, like I didn't just come out of, like I wasn't a superhero coming out of nowhere. My origin story is one of humble beginnings. It's one of, you know, I wasn't the perfect kid. I was made fun of. I didn't have these mentors that, that saying, if you see her, you could be her. Well, I didn't see anyone like me. I just knew I wanted to be this person and be myself and be this explorer. So how do you get there? Mentorship was very key for me. I started thinking about that. And I, like I just showed you, I started going into the archives. I looked at, I wrote some journals. I, I got with a ghostwriter. We started doing interviews and we started just breaking things down. That process, it's tiresome because now I have to start unearthing things that I've buried for a long time and get to the why and the how did I get through it and why did this happen and why were you angry at this time? Why did you fight with your mom? You know, all these things. I didn't mind revisiting it, but it's still a level of uncomfortableness and you have to reflect upon this. So there was just days I would sit in, in my office and just stare there and just like kind of sigh and go, oh boy, well, that uh, that sucked. Yeah, it's just a lot of intensity. It was, it was intense for a couple of months. And then when we started writing and then I had to edit and reread the stuff over and over again, it was like, oof, I welcome it. But it was, um, it was definitely a process. And as you get older, you know, I turned 50 this year. So this year has been incredible in terms of what I have done between the reality show, publishing a book, adopting the death of my mom. My mother-in-law just died last week. So there's been a lot of change that people experience within years that I just did in 365 days. Wow. What a year. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Not to brush that off, but I want you to talk more about Tough as Nails. And it is a reality show and you were recruited and interviewed and then selected for season two. First of all, what is the premise of the show and, and how did you fit in? So Tough as Nails is a competitive reality show and it takes 12 individuals, six men and six women from 
typically the trades, so your steel workers, your steel workers, your brick masons, your cement masons, welders, and they take a veteran. In our season, we had a nurse, uh, a delivery person, someone who worked train tracks. And they put us together and we compete as a team, two teams, equally three men, three women on each team. Then we compete individually. And there are two ways you can win money. As a team, every time you win a team challenge, you get money, $12,000 for the team to be split up amongst six people. Individual challenge is an elimination challenge. The last person that's left wins $200,000 in a truck. So we do these competitions based on the trades. It's done in LA. So we could do stuff that involves carpentry in my season. We did stuff at the dock that dealt with fish, which was absolutely disgusting. We worked on the ranch. We worked with bulldozers. We worked with cement. We went to a stadium and did things in a stadium. So basically it's hard labor. And the things we do usually will take maybe a week. And then we truncate that into a couple of hours and do it. So it's hard. <laughs> and what sort of role did you fit into as you know they were selecting the team? How did you fit into that team? So there's two teams. Uh, the names stay the same. is Savage Crew and Dirty Hands. And I was on Savage Crew. And I was picked, I think, because of my experience and the fact that that I don't quit. I'm, I'm a hard worker and I'm, I'm pretty versatile. So they knew that at this point, you know, in the beginning of the show, they know that I'm a, a retired colonel. And a lot of people were just shocked because, you know, they just saw the shirt that I wore. No one knew anything about me. You could see everyone else. Oh, this person is a lineman, this person. And they were all confused, like, Dragon Lady shirt, what is, what does this mean? And then when I went into it, I just remember everyone's jaw dropped, like, oh my gosh. So people had a lot of respect for me because of what I've done and what I've flown. But I think they didn't realize that I did have a lot of the skill sets and I could translate, especially if we work with heavy machinery or tools. Yeah, I can work with those. I have that skill set. So um, You're not a wallflower. Ah, uh, no, no, <laughs> no. I, I get my hands dirty. It was kind of funny. I think some people, I was surprised in their line of work that couldn't work the tools. And I would look at them going, righty, tighty, lefty, loosey. Like, really? <laughs> so it was, it was very interesting. So looking back on all of these various escapades that you we've spent the last hour or so talking about, did you ever feel like limiting beliefs factored in? Because it really doesn't sound like it. No. I don't look at a project or I don't look at a person and say they can only work to this level or uh, this project will only get me here. I always come with the perspective that, okay, let's, let's see what you got. Let's see how much I could get out of this. And not in a selfish way. It's just how far can I push this? I don't want things to settle down. Don't get me wrong. I tell my son sometimes, I was like, you need to knock it off or you need to, you need to chill. You need, like, basically you need to settle down, but in another way, because he is, he's me, like the apple, this apple fell straight down. It didn't roll a little <laughs> bit. It fell straight down. So I try to guide him so he stays out of the same pitfalls that I With fell into. With some Irish Viking added, right? 
Ooh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a bull in a china shop. Yeah. We live in a in a cul-de-sac. He goes outside with his friends. I hear him screaming the entire time. And I can't wait for him to hit puberty because his voice, like, I'll open the door and be like, Flynn. He's like, yes. I'm like, bro. <laughs> I just do this. And he's like, okay, mommy. And I just gave the <laughs> sign to, like, quiet down. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he screams. High pitch. High pitch. Falsetto voice. Oh, Ready to express himself to the world. Yes. Can you say anything about your daily habits and how, over time, they've made a difference in your life? You know, every day, your flight schedule is different, right? So it was very, and you had your ground job as well. But once you deployed, for me, it was about eat, sleep, fly, workout. In the Navy, when you're in ship and you do that, ship's company, does not, they don't like you as much because you're not pulling shifts. So, you know, there's always some, there's good natured tension because they're like, oh, you pilots, all you do is sleep all day with your crew rest and your 12 hours, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, good night. But we try to stay, I would have a better routine if I was deployed because I just can focus on the mission, eat, sleep, keep my body. You know, I would lose weight on deployments as opposed to being back home when you're doing a ground job and every day it's different and you get your meetings. You try to stay on a routine. I try to work out every day um, in some capacity, whether it's cardio one day, strength training the next day. Since I've retired and I have these kids that suck the life out of me, really it's about making sure that they're provided for, making sure that they do all their homework and the stuff that's necessary, making sure that you know I wake up in the mornings, I got my clients. It depends on the day. It depends on if my husband's home. I need to get a workout in. If I miss a workout, I am a little grouchy, but you know that's what my garage is for. We do have, I can work out there and do a full workout. I have an elliptical. I'm responsible for the daytime routine, getting the kids ready for school, getting them out the door. My husband's responsible for the nighttime routine. And then during the evening, I could focus more on either speeches or when I get questions for a podcast or uh, um, working out. So I try to get it all done. So that's what I do. I try to keep that type of routine. What will your next chapter hold? Yeah, so since I hit 50, you know, I, this year was really a moment. I almost want to say to reflect, but if I re- keep reflecting like this, man, I'm going to have about five books. So, you know, and I did, I, I did look at my whole life for the last 50 years and it's culminated into Shatter the Sky. The show came out. I always say that, you know, 50, they say you're over the hill. But my thing is, nah, I'm just looking at the next mountain to climb or the next hill to climb. So um, I'm working on the audiobook. I do want to do another book, something a little more serious. I mean, this Shatter the Sky was serious, but it was more of an introduction to me. So now I'm going to break it out into more leadership focused for the next book. I just signed on with Sierra College as a board member to help them. I want to continue with doing book signings, getting the book out there more. Partial proceeds from the book do go to an organization, a Legacy Flight Academy. And my shirt, 100% of the proceeds goes to Mission 22. So I want to continue to do that and raise awareness and raise money and help kids and mentor people in a way that I was when I was younger. So I'm 
going more into that role with, you know, I'm still doing stuff and still being busy, but, you know, I'm trying to help as many people and nudge as many people as possible. If I could go around saying that one thing, it's letting people know no matter where they came from, when that opportunity presents itself, you are valuable and you have something to give. I want you to give it. I want you to show. And those things will most likely change, if not change the world, change other people's perspective. There's another board that I've been asked to go on, which I can't get into yet, but that mission will, I think, pair nicely with the stuff I'm doing at Sierra College. It's just helping younger people get that opportunity to be in fields that may have been closed to them before. And what they're going to bring to the table is going to be amazing. Cool. I'll make sure that I get links to all of those things. We can include them in our show notes for sure. I want to do a quick speed round with you and then we're going to tie a bow on it. Are you ready? Yes. Ready as ever. What have you done by 9 a.m. on a typical day? Depending on the day, I've already trained one client. I've sent the kids to school. At 9 o'clock, I'm already preparing for my next client, uh, workout client. What's your favorite home-cooked meal? Anything seafood like uh, shellfish. Back in New York, blue crab was pretty cool. That was like a special time. I like that. If you had a food truck, what would you serve? I would serve Korean food. I love Korean food. Korean food. I would do bibimbap, uh, galbi, bulgogi, probably some type of fusions. Gosh, it's so good. Awesome. My big thing right now is pokey. The bowl. Yeah, pokey bowls. This sushi place over here does pokey bowl with like squid and like white fish and all this other stuff. Put a little unagi sauce on it. Yeah. Good to go. What's one surprising thing people may not know about you? I think some people know uh, I play Candy Crush on my spare time. I'm on 9,035. That's the level I'm on. Surprising thing about me. If you don't read the book, I play French. I played French horn. Yeah. I mean, when you just, when you write a memoir, it's, it's hard to dig <laughs> into more surprising things. My surprising thing is I went to, I used to go to the Renaissance Festival and dress up. As? Uh, my D&D characters. So one time I dressed up as a druid. <laughs> I want a picture of that. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of my son and daughter. Uh, how they're turning into nice little human beings when they're not being jerks. And is there um, anything you're reading or a book that you can recommend? Right now I'm reading some Malcolm Gladwell just because I, I bought three of his books. So Outliers, I forgot the other two. I, I was reading, I started reading Outliers. So um, I started with that. Uh, there was another vampire book I just bought just because. Oh, there's Blink and The Tipping Point? Is that, those uh, two? I read The Tipping Point. Yeah, so I read The Tipping Point. You got the same thing. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I think yeah, I read The Tipping Point, not Blinket. I'm reading Outliers. Is there any question you wish I'd asked? Any question I wished you'd ask? Because then you're going to make me answer it. You can say no. I mean, it's pretty thorough. What about The Dragon Lady? I never didn't ask that. The Dragon Lady is the name of the U2. I think my, my brother and sisterhood are okay with me like using the name now because of the notoriety and the fact that most people thought the U2 wasn't being flown, but yeah, the Dragon Lady, because we always say you have to fight the dragon to dance with the lady. So this aircraft is difficult to challenge, but to make it do what you want and to be that smooth aircraft up at altitude, you know, you got to fight this thing for landing, for flying at lower altitudes and land it correctly. 
or she's going to tear you up. So the YouTube community, I love. It's a small community. It's a small group of people. I jokingly say we're from the land of the not quite right because you've got to be a little not quite right to want to fly this thing consistently in a, in a pressure suit, breathing 100% oxygen, putting your body through the physiological changes and the dangers and do this mission. I love it. I get excited. Was there any long-term impact of your body going through that? Yes, I do have, I do have brain lesions. I was told they're basically like dead spots. You know, you get them as you get older and you're 65 or stuff. People who do high altitude stuff, I think even uh, climbers get those. And so I probably have about 20. And there has been no impact that I am aware of yet, but they don't know the long-term impact. So we'll see. Yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah. We'll just keep in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Well, I think I've put you through the ringer at this point. Meryl, thank you so much. This has been a total delight. It's been fun, but also really deep. I think there's a lot that you have brought out in your book and that you've been willing to talk about and laugh about that is very human and relatable and also very unique and specific to to who you are. So just thank you for sharing, all of you. Thank you so much. I mean. I think one thing, you know, going from a world that is classified in the jobs that I've done and sharing all this, it is uncomfortable. I'm definitely, I've leaned into it. Like I've jumped in the pool of uncomfortableness and I'm swimming around and I'm backstroking right now. But I do it because I think there's someone out there who may think they're all alone, that they're flying their own U2 in life, but to let them know that, yeah, there's a couple of us from that land and you're not alone and you can turn this around to something very positive. So I hope that happens. Yeah, I think that really resonates. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What can I say to bookend this conversation with Meryl? First, well, I hope that it was as riveting for you as it was for me. There's so much to learn about life in the things that we do and the way that we do them. The subtitle of Merrill's book, What Going to the Stratosphere Taught Me About Self-Worth, Sacrifice, and Discipline, I feel like she taught all of that to us today and continues to do so. There are so many parts of this conversation that continue to reverberate with me, but the major takeaway is about serving and finding life lessons in what we do, along with the importance of solitude to really gain perspective and clarity about life's purpose. Okay, I promised you pop culture notes on the U2. Just to be clear, these are my thoughts from research and you should check your own facts here, but word on the street is that Bono and the boys chose U2 as a reference to that breed of American spy plane that started the Cold War when the last planned flight by Gary Powers was shot down and the USSR ended what was until then a fairly cordial relationship. Blame Ike and the CIA, but don't miss what else the name means. It's you too, as in like you too can make a difference or you too can change the world. It's not just in this fight. It's not just about this, it's you too. Taken in this light, it's not a stupid name. It's actually kind of clever. It's meant to include the listener 
in their agenda. At least that's the way that I look at it. Also, in 2015, Steven Spielberg's film, Bridge of Spies, recreated the 1960 event of the U-2 piloted by Gary Powers being shot down while on a reconnaissance mission over the Soviet Union. So there's that. But back to Merrill, my admiration for Merrill runs very deep, and I hope that you too will continue to follow her. Find her book, watch the Tough as Nails episodes, follow her on Instagram and Clubhouse, and visit her website, MerrillTengestall.com. These links are all in the show notes and this episode's webpage on WhenWomenFly.com. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, and why it is important. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening and spending an hour of your life here. If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it, and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Sharing this episode with someone who comes to mind as you listen to this conversation and leaving a podcast review helps our discoverability and deepens the reach and impact of the When Women Fly project. So thanks in advance. You can always contact me at hello at whenwomenfly.com and send along what you would like to hear in 2022. Okay, have a great week. I send you love and light and strength and flight, however that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.